Hello, it's Jeremy Myers, and you are listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Just so you know, I'll be taking a few weeks off in September. Just want to let you know that right now. We're looking today at Ephesians 2.10, which is sort of um, halfway through Ephesians 2 and a good uh, breaking point so I can take a couple of weeks break just to take care of some personal things and get ready for the fall. Today, though, we will be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And uh, it's going to show us that God has prepared good works in advance for you to do. We will be looking at what this verse means and what these good works are when God prepared them for you. And also how this explanation of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 fits within the overall message of Ephesians chapter 2 as we've been looking at it uh, up to this point in all of these podcast episodes, okay? Uh, However, prior to that, we're also going to answer a question from a reader about baptism in the Bible. So let's move right on to that. You've got mail. So uh, the question from the reader is this. He writes, I am 72 years old and have been a believer for 60 years. I'm not a theologian by any stretch, but am filled with the Holy Spirit and know how to hear and be led by him. I am taught by the Holy Spirit and truth is truth. I have over my 60 years in Jesus seen it all and been in a lot of it. Many denominations from Presbyterian, Methodist, Catholic, AG, which is Assemblies of God, Charismatic, Pentecostal, Hyper-Calvinist, you name it, even Hebraic roots. I have heard it all and more. That is quite the spectrum there. Anyway, he goes on to write, Baptism in water and in the Holy Spirit is totally misunderstood and applied. I agree. Uh, He says, "I, I know that Matthew 28, 19 is not water baptism. I know Mark 16, 16 is misused as water baptism saves. The only baptism with water in the Gospels is John's baptism of repentance. How theologians have come to believe it has been transferred to Jesus when the only baptism the Gospels speak of is Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. The immersion into the name, the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is what is spoken to the disciples and believers, not water baptism. Am I correct? Okay, so uh, these are some great questions from a reader, very insightful. And in fact, some questions that lots of Christians have never even considered. Uh, I did write a whole series of posts a while back on baptism. They're on my website, and you can just go down to the search bar in the lower right-hand corner, search for a baptism post or uh, things like that, um, if you want to read more on what I've written in the past. Now, if, if you don't want to do that search, there are other ways to get those posts. I put them all in my book, Close Your Church for Good. The book is close to 800 pages, so uh, it's a massive book. But uh, you don't have to read the whole thing to find out what I wrote about baptism. There's a section in there on Christian rites, R-I-T-E-S, and in that section I I discuss uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism. So you can, if you get that book on Amazon or wherever, it's a big book, uh, but you can can read the section in there on baptism. Now, if you're part of my discipleship group, you can also take my Gospel Dictionary online course, There is a lesson in that course on baptism, and it is there for you to take and listen and learn uh, from right now. Anyway, uh, 
the, the primary thing we have to recognize about baptism is that it is not a translation of any Greek word, okay? Um, there is a Greek word behind the word, but uh, what, the, what the Bible translators did, our, our, our English Bible translators, is they took this Greek word, and rather than translate it, you know, take the, the Greek word and turn it into an English word, what they did is they did something called transliterate, okay? Transliterate is not translation. Transliterate is when you take the Greek letters and just change them into English letters and call it good. So it's not a translation. They're transliterating it, okay? So what is the Greek word? It's baptisma. You hear it. That's the Greek word, baptisma. So what did our translators do? Rather than translate baptisma, they took the Greek letters, you know, the beta, turned it into a B, the alpha, turned it into an A, and so on. And so now we have baptism. Okay, so baptisma becomes baptism. And uh, then they left it like that. A and that right there has caused so much trouble in Christianity. I really, really, really wish they would have actually translated the word into English. And if they had done so, what would they have translated it as? Well, baptisma means immersion. Would have been a fine translation. I really wish they would have done that. So here's what I recommend you do. Whenever you see the word baptism or baptize or whatever uh, in the Bible, stop and substitute in a, a fine English translation of immerse or immersion, something like that, and then look into the context to see what kind of immersion is in view. You might say, well, Jeremy, it says immersion, and, and all immersion is in water. Well, no, it isn't. There's all sorts of immersions you can do that have absolutely nothing to, uh, with water. Okay, so for example, uh, if, if, if someone's thinking about visiting a foreign country and they want to learn the language of that foreign country before they go, or maybe even as part of their, their first couple months there, all right, they might undergo language immersion, okay, as a way to learn the language of the other country. Now, does this mean, immersion means water, does this mean that they are going to get dunked underwater, uh, you know, some sort of special water, so that they can learn the language of that other country? Of course not. Language immersion means that they fully immerse themselves in the culture and language and surround themselves with people who only speak that other language. They, they engage in activities. They basically learn that other language the way babies learn a language, by getting immersed in it, okay, surrounding themselves with, with it. Okay, and, and so language immersion has absolutely nothing to do with getting dunked or, or, or uh, you know, buried into water or anything like that. Okay, uh, it's just surrounding yourself with it. The same thing is true when you come across the various uses of baptism in the Bible. So, for example, uh, you, can, and you can be immersed, and the Bible talks about being immersed in a variety of different things. Uh, yeah, there is the water immersion, which this, uh, this reader properly pointed out is the baptism of John, which is talked about in Matthew and Luke and so on. Okay, it was a, a baptism for Jewish people only, similar to their practice of mitzvah, ritual cleansing. And um, it was a baptism of repentance. It had nothing to do with Christianity, and still doesn't. So uh, anyway, uh, there's other things, though, that have nothing to do with water. For example, you can be baptized with fire. Uh, you can be baptized or immersed into the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about that in Romans 6. Okay, Is the Holy Spirit immersion? Does that have water? Has anything to do with water? No. It's a dry baptism. It has nothing whatsoever to do with water. You can be baptized or immersed into Moses. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 10 too. How can you be immersed into a person? Well, 
You learn everything there is to know about that person. You become like them. You follow them. You, you, you learn their traits and their characteristics and their abilities and their teachings even. And then, of course, you can be immersed into Jesus. That's what I believe Jesus is, in fact, talking about in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, uh, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means immersing them into the teachings, the truths, the biblical truths about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not about water baptism, dunking people underwater. Okay, um, anyway, there, there's a bunch of examples I just gave you where baptisma, immersion, is talked about in the Bible and it has nothing whatsoever to do with water. Okay, so this gets back to the question from the reader. He mentions Matthew 28, 19 and Mark 16, 16, and he correctly points out that these have nothing whatsoever to do with water, and I agree with him. They don't. Okay, he mentions the baptism of John, which, as I already indicated, this was a water baptism, but it was a, a Jewish ritual cleansing. Um, and uh, it was a baptism of repentance. It had nothing to do with becoming a Christian or following Jesus or anything like that. Uh, this was something Jewish people regularly did to, to show, to signify that they were turning away from their old way of life and were going to start a new way of life. Okay? Um, it had nothing to do with receiving eternal life or becoming a Christian or anything like that. Okay? So anyway, the reader is right, and I really appreciate the question. There are many passages in the Bible that do use the word baptism, but which have absolutely nothing to do with getting dunked underwater. Okay? And, and the sad part is that because of this misunderstanding caused by this, this mistranslation or lack of translation even from our English translators— the church has gone through so much turmoil, strife, even violence. There have been literal murders and deaths uh, over, over baptism, issues of baptism in church history. Okay? Um, especially during the Reformation, there was arguments about baptism. People got baptized as an infant, and they said, well, that wasn't valid, so they got baptized as an adult. And other people were like, what? You're saying infant baptism isn't valid? Well, I'm going to baptize you a third time. And they'd tie rocks around their heads and and throw them into rivers and drown them and stuff, okay? Issues over baptism. It's really, really tragic. All because English translators, of course, during the Reformation, it wasn't English, it was other languages, but still the same, same concept, simply misunderstood a single Greek word, okay? So anyway, I appreciate the question. Thank you for the reader who sent that in. I didn't use your name because I'm not sure I had permission for that, but I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And look, if you want to learn more about baptism— I did already mention some of those ways you can do it. There's articles on my website. Just search for it. Uh, there's a whole section in my book, Close Your Church for Good, on baptism. And, of course, you can join my discipleship group and take my online, uh, my, my gospel dictionary online course. There's a lesson in there on baptism as well. Okay? So, with all in mind, let's get into our study of Ephesians 2.10. So Ephesians 2.10 is what I call a hinge verse. It's a, it's a transition verse, right? It transitions from everything Paul has written in Ephesians chapter 2 so far, uh, in, in verses 1 through 9. It, it transitions from that to what Paul is going to say in verses 11 through 22. Okay, so I'll, I'll talk about, I'll show you how it is a transition. But first, let's just, let's just sort of quickly study the verse itself. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
All right, so there's several key phrases, sort of three key sections of this verse. Let's let's sort of just look at them one at a time. First, Paul writes that we are his workmanship. Okay, there are some numerous beautiful aspects about this phrase. All right, first, uh, in the New Testament, it's really only used here and in Romans 1.20, this concept of being God's workmanship. And in Romans 1.20, Paul uses it in reference to the things God made in creation. So when Paul uses this word here, I, I believe he has in mind the original intent or the original purpose uh, or, or the original tasks which God assigned to humanity, gave to humanity when he created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. All right. Uh, when God created humans in the garden in Genesis 1, and then a different way of telling it in Genesis 2, God did so with a specific task and purpose, goal. He assigned them responsibilities. If you've been with me since the very beginning on this podcast, you may remember that we studied this at great depth and detail when we looked at Genesis 1 and 2. Just by way of summary, we were created, as you know from Genesis 1, to be the image of God. Uh, to, and I describe that as being sort of the ambassadors of God uh, in this world, the, the, the physical presence of God. We are, we are God's hands and feet uh, and voice and ears to this world. Uh, in, in the imagery in chapter 2, in fact, uh, even sort of points out that we are the central uh, wonder of God's garden, the garden of God, and we are the statue of God. That's the way the description is. We're the statue of God. But unlike the pagan statues, which just sit there silently as stone, we are living, breathing, talking, walking, working statues. We actually function in the garden of God. Okay, that's Genesis 2-7, my podcast study on Genesis 2-7. Anyway, all of that is what Paul has in mind here when he talks about being his workmanship. And you can go listen to some of those podcasts on Genesis uh, if you want. Um, so, so, so that's the first sort of idea to keep in mind here. Now, second, the word that Paul uses here for workmanship is really a beautiful word in Greek. The Greek word is poema. And you might sort of recognize that. It sounds a lot like the English word poem. And how do you like that? Um, did you know God wrote poetry? <laughs> he did. And guess what? You are his poem. You are the poetry of God. Have you ever thought of yourself as the poetry of God? And one of the reasons I like this is because life is hard, isn't it? Especially now, there's so much chaos and suffering and hurt and pain and anger in this world right now. Um, but look, there's also elements of joy and beauty and laughter as well, isn't there? And why is there both? Well, one reason is because you're a poem. I don't know if you've read much poetry, but poetry sort of runs the gamut on all the human emotions, whether you're talking about poetry in the book of Psalms or just, you know, poetry from, from other uh, human authors throughout history. Uh, and, and so our life is a poem that God is writing. And so, yes, it's filled with pain and anguish and hurt and suffering and also filled with beauty and joy and laughter and happiness and hope, okay, because, because all of the greatest poems in human history— have these emotional highs and emotional lows. Pain and beauty, sorrow and laughter. Okay, so I don't know what phase of the poem your life is in right now, but guess what? God's not done writing the poem of your life. Uh, it, there's another stanza to be written tomorrow 
whatever you're experiencing today, get up tomorrow and say, God, what are you going to write about my life today? And you can look forward with joy and hope and expectation as a result. Okay? So I just find this idea beautiful and encouraging and just uh, sort of a, an exciting aspect to life as you go through it because you can look with each, at each moment and second of your life, each minute, with expectation as another line being written in the poem of God that is your life. Okay? Uh, and, and a lot of that, of course, is done because we are God's workmanship. Now, uh, here's a final thing about workmanship. God has devoted a lot of time and energy uh, into us as his workmanship, all right? Uh, we are his hands and feet, his voice. We are the epic poem that he's writing. As a result of all of that, he's not just going to toss us aside. He's not going to abandon us. He's not going to just leave us and let us go our own way. We are a significant I don't investment for God, if you want to put it that way. And, and so he is going to take care of his investment. He wants to get a good return on his investment. He wants to finish the poem in a crescendo of glory that takes our breath away. And so that's what Paul is referring to next in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, Paul says, Paul writes that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. All right, now before I explain what this means, let me explain what it does not mean, and sadly, how many, many pastors and teachers explain it, which is, which is wrong. There are many pastors and teachers that look at this and see, see, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And since they misunderstand Ephesians 2, 8, 9, as references to how to receive eternal life, it doesn't, it's not teaching about that, but since they think it is, they then tie this concept of good works in 2.10 with the concept of eternal life in verses 8 and 9, and they say, see, if you are truly saved, if you are really a Christian, your life is going to give evidence of it by good works. And if you don't have the good works, then maybe you're not really saved. Maybe you don't really have eternal life. You see how that works? And that's a terrible explanation of this text on a variety of of, for a variety of reasons. All right. First of all, remember that Paul is not even talking about eternal life. I've, t- I've shown you that, especially in the two previous uh, studies where we looked at the meaning of the word salvation in verses 5 through 7. And then also last time when we looked at those key verses, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where by grace are you saved through faith. Okay. And, and we saw that Paul is not talking about how to receive eternal life there. Okay. So that's the first thing. But, but let's just, you know, for the benefit of the doubt, even if, okay, if Paul was talking about eternal life in verses 8 and 9, I would argue that Ephesians 2.10 is still not teaching that good works have anything whatsoever to do with receiving eternal life, keeping eternal life, or even proving that we truly have eternal life. Okay, why? Uh, because this verse, Ephesians 2.10, it's not in reference to how to receive eternal life. Again, it, this is if 8 and 9 is talking about eternal life. If 8 and 9 is talking about how to receive eternal life, 2.10 is not talking about how to receive eternal life. It's moving on from eternal life and talking about the path of discipleship. How to live your life now that you are uh, part of God's family. And like it or not, and this is where many pastors and teachers don't like this idea, but like it or not, discipleship is optional. 
uh, eternal life is eternal, whether or not you follow Jesus on the path of discipleship. Now, we should follow Jesus on the path of discipleship because that's how we live our best life now here on this earth. But if you choose, for whatever dumb reason, to not follow Jesus on the path of discipleship, God isn't going to say, ah, well, then you're not really my son. You're not really my daughter. He's not going to take away your eternal life because eternal life is eternal. And the only condition for receiving eternal life is believing in Jesus for it. So once you've done that, you have eternal life, no matter what. No ifs, ands, or buts. Okay? And so Ephesians 2.10 would just be Paul's encouragement. Hey, look, now that you have eternal life, why don't you also follow Jesus on the path of discipleship? Because that's how you're going to experience God's life in you, the best way to live this life. Oh, sure, you can live a different way. You can stab yourself in the, in the knee and stick your hand in the blender and, and experience pain and hardship and turmoil and strife. Yeah, there's going to be pain and hardship and turmoil and strife as a follower of Jesus also, but a more rewarding kind, uh, one that brings you more satisfaction and joy than the depressing kind that the world offers. Okay, but anyway, this is about discipleship. Again, if... Paul is talking about eternal life in verses 8 and 9. He's not, so that whole discussion there is sort of moot. All right, we can just leave it alone. Let's talk what, what's, let's see what Paul is actually talking about. All right, the good works that Paul has in view here are the good works that, I've already said this, that God gave to humanity to perform way back in the Garden of Eden. And, and since we're all humans, uh, then these good works have been passed down to us. Uh, Paul has just talked in the beginning of verse 10 about how we are God's workmanship. We just talked about what that means. His, we are his poem, okay? And he began this workmanship, us, this poem, us, at the, at the creation of the world, at the beginning of the world, okay? And so this means that the good works that Paul is talking about here, these are the tasks, the responsibilities, the assignments, that God has given to humanity way back in creation, at the foundation of the world. And what Paul is saying here, okay, to tie it into verses 8 and 9, is that once we recognize, once we see the truth that God has revealed to us in Jesus Christ, verses 8 and 9, that we no longer have to live the way the world lives, we can live a different way, a better way. Okay, once we see that truth, it is then that we can actually start living the way God really wants us to live, the way he created us to live, the way he made us to live. See, up until we recognize this revelation, this truth revealed to us in Jesus, then we are living in the realm of death, okay, which Paul described in verses 1 through 3. And uh, now we can be delivered or saved from living that old way, the worldly way of, of death and, and, and deeds of darkness. Okay, and we can now start living in this world as the image of God, as the ambassadors of God, as this living, breathing, moving, working statue of God in the garden of God. Okay, so, so that's, that's what Paul is talking about here with these good works. Okay, and he goes on to talk about this. It's the same idea at the last part of this verse, Ephesians 2.10, where he says that these were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, okay? When is the beforehand? Again, at the beginning, uh, at, at creation, when, when God made humanity in the Garden of Eden. Those are the good works that God prepared beforehand. 
In my Genesis podcast, I did talk about these seven key activities of God that God performs in Genesis 1. And I also pointed out, it's very, very interesting, that God uh, assigned these activities to humans to carry out in his stead, in his place, or in his, on his behalf, uh, in partnership with him. We're God's business partners, in a sense. Okay, And he has these key tasks, these good works that he wants us to do. And he did them first. And now he says, okay, now you've seen me do them. This is just good discipleship. Now that you've seen me do them, you do them as well. And I'll help you. Okay? You'll, you help me, I help you, and, and now you do these. And that is what God has, is doing. Um, I do list these seven key activities in my Genesis podcast, but there's also an article. If you, if you go to the notes section, manuscript section for this podcast episode, I'll link to the seven key activities of God uh, there, and you can go read those if you want. Okay, so that's what Paul is talking about here as well. Now, there are specific applications of those key activities. I think this is where spiritual gifts gets involved and, and how your key tasks might be slightly different or maybe majorly different from mine. Not everybody's supposed to be a teacher or a servant and so on. We all do a little bit of teaching, a little bit of serving, but each one of us has specifically assigned tasks and responsibilities in this world, but they all fit within those seven key activities, okay? Sort of those are the umbrella overarching purposes and responsibilities, and then each one of us has sort of subtasks uh, underneath those, and that's where spiritual gifts are involved. I have a course on spiritual gifts in my discipleship group if you want to take those, uh, if you want to take that course, okay? So that's what Paul's talking about here. Now, what about this final phrase there, that we should walk in them? All right, the Greek word here is peripateo. It means to walk about. And basically, God wants us to walk about, to explore, to investigate this world, and all of the opportunities for good works, all of the possibilities that he has made for us in this world. And I'm pointing this out here because, primarily because, peripateo, uh, this word walk, becomes the key word in Ephesians chapters 4 and 5, and really half of chapter 6 as well, okay? Um, I don't know if you've ever read Watchman Nee's book on Ephesians. It's titled Sit, Walk, Stand. And he points out correctly that Ephesians is sort of dominated by three key verbs. Sit, walk, stand. And Ephesians 1, 2, 3 is about how we are seated with Christ in heavenly places and what that means. Ephesians 4 and 5 and half of chapter 6 are about walking, how we are supposed to walk as Christians in this world. And then the final section in Ephesians verses 10 through 20 of Ephesians 6, the spiritual warfare section. This is about how when we're facing spiritual warfare, we just are supposed to stand our ground. So sit, walk, stand. Okay, so again, uh, I, I mentioned earlier that this is a hinge verse for chapter 2, but right here by mentioning peripateo, Paul is also doing a little foreshadowing, a little preview of what he will be talking about in chapters 4, 5, and half of 6 this keyword walk, peripateo. Okay, so sort of a hinge verse on multiple levels. Now, as far as how it's a hinge verse here in chapter two, let's just look at that real briefly. I've mentioned multiple times in our study of Ephesians chapter two that it can be divided into three sections. All right, there's the problem. Uh, Paul describes the human problem in verses one through three. Then he describes the solution in verses four through 10. And then finally, the application in verses 11 through 22. The problem, solution, application. Uh, so in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, 
This is the problem is this never-ending cycle of death and violence that consumes the world. These are the bad works. Bad works versus good works. Okay, these are the bad works, the deeds of darkness, and they are brought into this world through the deceptions of Satan, the accuser. We talked about all that. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10, then, is the solution. God revealing to us this problem and the cure, the fix, uh, which is uh, revealed to us through Jesus and especially his death on the cross. Okay, uh, so verses 4 through 10 the solution, God is, Paul is showing us what God has done for us in Jesus Christ to deliver us, rescue us, save us from that cycle of death and violence. And then verses 11 through 22 is his application, okay? What life is supposed to look like for us now? How we can live free from those bad works, evil works of darkness and death, and can now live in the good works of light and life and the kingdom that God has prepared for us, that he has wanted us to live in since he made us way back in the Garden of Eden. Okay, so that's why Ephesians 2.10 then is a transition. Paul is closing out the section on what God has done for us um, and is beginning this section on the good works, how we're supposed to live now in light of all of this. Okay, how we're supposed to live as God's ambassadors, God's poem in this world. Okay, and so that's why it's a transition. It's, it's, it's summarizing the past, it's transitioning to this future a section of Ephesians. And, and that's what this whole chapter has been leading up to. I think a lot of people, when they read Ephesians chapter 2, they get really excited about 1 through, 1 through 10, and especially verses 8 and 9. But then 11 to 22 is like, I don't know what all this is about here. I mean, it's good stuff, but uh, let's, let, let's move on to the next something more exciting. Okay, Personally, I'm really excited about Ephesians 11 to 22 because this is the point. Okay, Here's the point of why Paul has been leading up this whole section. And more importantly, if you've ever wondered what's wrong with the world and how come God's not doing anything in the world and why there's so many problems in the world and why doesn't it's just such a mess. Okay, guess what? Verses 11 to 22 is the answer. <laughs> okay, the world is living in the deeds of darkness. God showed us a different way. Here's how you can show the world, change the world, transform the world to live in this different way. Now, that's pretty exciting, right? Something we can all get excited about. And so that is where we will pick up next time when we look at Ephesians 2.11. Again, I'm not fully sure when. I just got it all ramped up for you, but I'm going to be taking a couple of weeks off. It'll probably be near the end of September uh, that I pick back up, or maybe first week in October, somewhere in there, uh, when we look at Ephesians 2.11 and this next thrilling, exciting section of Ephesians chapter 2. Hey, thank you so much for listening today. Really appreciate it. Uh, and um, thanks for uh, joining with me with sort of these sporadic breaks I sometimes take just to... Uh, navigate through life. I really appreciate it. We'll see you next time when we pick back up in Ephesians 2, 11.